Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Nick Saltarelli, one of the co-founders of Midday Squares. Midday Squares is the first functional chocolate bar. Nick founded the company with his wife, Leslie, and brother-in-law, Jake. We discuss how and why his family wanted to start a chocolate company, why they decided to vertically integrate instead of outsourcing manufacturing, and their combination of marrying content with CPG, and much, much more. Without further ado, here's Nick. Nick, thank you so much for joining me here, man. How are you? Let's go. Man, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I think the reality is of an entrepreneur, like I said, you got to be able to switch emotions. So like five minutes before this conversation, I was being just hit with a lot of worry of things that are happening in the business. And when you get hit with that, that energy will make you feel worry and then you got to turn it off and then you're going on a podcast and you got to switch your mindset that's the beauty of being an entrepreneur though you got to just like you got to be able to handle this shit so that's how i'm doing man yeah no 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 i appreciate that and i appreciate you you being so honest just when like shit just like comes at you at like all sorts of different angles is there any like advice that you have for entrepreneurs when you know because obviously you're building something stuff crashes right things don't go according to plan like how do you nothing goes according to plan exactly exactly there maybe is no plan how do you personally just resolve that or you know been able to like function normally if that makes sense no i actually i'm i'm really pumped that you asked it that specific way because this is not my first go at entrepreneurship so i have learned a lot of things in terms of how to deal with this specific thing and How I deal with this specifically is this mindset philosophy of not giving a fuck about it in terms of coming to a piece of really being okay with midday squares smashing into a wall. Like I'm at a very good place with things completely falling apart and ending in the sense that I, I know that I could always provide for myself in a really strong way and so I'll never be on the streets type thing so that mentality allows me to be fearless and then it also allows me to emotionally detach from midday squares because ultimately I give it my all and what will be will be and that piece is something that I found has allowed me to really flow with this because at the end of the day it's a shit show from the beginning to the end I don't give a fuck who you are or what you say it's just always a shit show and if you just become overtaken by it obsessed by it it runs your life and you have to remember that you only have one life to live and you know my dad dying when I was 10 really like just gave me that perspective and so the answer my advice is is you guys have to be really okay with not caring about your business while caring about your business and so that means you have to be okay with it dying Wow, that's really powerful stuff right there. And I appreciate it that that you know being really honest and that you know it's always a shit show to get there. And it seems like too just maybe this is just what I'm kind of getting maybe from your energy is that it's a shit show but there's always a way. But that way it's never how you intended to get there, but there's always a way to get there if that makes sense. Exactly. And Midday Squares does not define me. I am not Nick Saltarelli Midday Squares, although people would like to think that, but 
I put in a lot of work internally to get to a point where I'm just Nick. And I just happen to be on a gig called Midday Squares right now. And that gig requires me to put my best foot forward. And so at the end of the day, when it's still burning and it's nine o'clock, I actually am there. I smoke a dube in my house, watch some television, and I go to sleep. And I don't really give a shit if the whole place burns down because I've given it my all. Like, what more do you want during that day? I've put in my 10 hours. What maybe was part of that journey that you had to take in order to get that separation from you and your business and you not being defined by the success or failure of your business, per se? The answer to that for me is I really came in my philosophy that I've been preaching a lot, even when I was doing like when I'm doing college gigs or, or podcasts and stuff like that is is in order to do something that we're trying to do at Midday Squares. I believe it requires a full integration of your life. And so my life is midday squares. And I know that's counterintuitive to what I just said, but it is not me as a person. So my life, my wife, we wake up every day and it's not like we go to work or that. It's just the whole thing is integrated. The content is integrated. And ultimately, my piece with the whole thing is this is our journey. I know what it takes to become a top 10 brand. And so this is what the workload's going to be. You have to be on camera all the time. You have to be communicating to your audience at the level we're trying to communicate with your audience. And that poses no guarantee. That being said, if I'm committed to this journey and going back to what you said, Mike, putting in my everyday work so I could go to sleep at night content, Part of that is the content. I know I'm giving 110. I know we are giving 110 in order to give this thing the best possible shot at success. And so that's how I deal with all that content and and being constantly on. It's like almost I'm in a meditative state while we're doing it. Don't get me wrong. I have my ups and downs, but I try to be in this state of where I am not looking to have different experiences in my life outside of midday squares. They all have to just be part of it. That makes sense. And I'd imagine it's, I mean, nothing's of course easy, but I'd imagine it might be somewhat easy because you obviously share online. Like, I mean, all of you share like your ups and downs in the company and really take us through like it all. And I'd imagine that if you were some, you know, like aspirational brand, right? Where like you're only on camera when like the things and and times are good, then it's actually much harder to like separate yourself from the business. But the fact that like you're obviously you you really are humanizing you know entrepreneurship overall you your wife um, your brother in law Jake then I think that even though it's maybe a lot more intense because maybe it's a bit more because um, you see like the ups and downs you see it all but at the same time you can walk away saying like that's me right and not just this like some like abstract version or or online Instagram cookie cutter kind of face of you right i'm going to plug our podcast midday squares uncensored if you don't listen please Do listen it. uh we it's a really a round table between Jake Les and i and and it's not us interviewing guests it's us really distilling at a table together about our journey and one of the parts i said in one of the the shows i can't remember which is it's actually way easier. I don't have to live a double life. The number one thing I find people say when they meet any of us is like, oh, you're actually exactly like, yeah, that's the point. It's, <laughs> it's supposed to be the exact same person. It's not supposed to be two different people. And it gives you a lot of peace because then you don't have to go through life like tippy-toeing around these, these identities you've created. 
It's a really good point. And and it's obviously like great to see that transparency. Obviously, like the like the person you see on Instagram or LinkedIn or Twitter is like the exact same person that you're getting like in in real life. Key. That's like our motto at Midday Square. The product has to be consistent. The team has to be consistent. We have to be consistent because that creates long-term loyalty. Why did you want to be an entrepreneur? Maybe what were, if, if there were a couple people maybe that, that you were inspired by that really led you down like this like path of you know being your own boss and, and really want to be an entrepreneur yourself? Originally, it was money. It was just that seemed like the best use of my time for ROI, right? It just... It was completely driven by dollars uh, in my late teenagers that got me initially. I think that's what drives everybody into it, uh, especially in your teenage years. Like I, I went and worked, right? I had jobs where I, I remember my like first job was just minimum wage. And then I progressed into um, commission-based work for Canadian Tire. I was working in, in Canada. Um, and then I realized commission-based work made me more ROI than hourly work. And then that just continued looping up that, oh, this is probably the best leverage of my time is being an entrepreneur. And then that transformed into it being seen as a sport. I was a competitive athlete my whole life. And when that came to an end, like, you know, I spent, let's say, pre-20 trying to be, you know, trying to make the NHL. And so when that journey ended, I needed a new journey. I do really well in environments where stats are reported. And so Business is like really that if you're trying to play at the highest level, it's, you know, you can get to public reporting, you can get to all sorts of stuff. And so it became kind of like a board game for me, entrepreneurship, something that really allowed me to play with the idea of life. My, my, here's my, if you ask, if you want to know my views on life, it's, it's really simple. Be stimulated until you die and try to do more good than bad during that stimulation on your time and your planet. And so when you look at it through that lens, it becomes a lot simpler for me, at least. I can't speak for everybody else. And so what makes me stimulated is solving problems, really important problems like what Elon's doing at Tesla, or problems could be simply bringing forward brands at scale, which is what we're working on here. And then being stimulated always comes at counterculture for me. I love being against the grain. I always have. I've always just been so attracted to thinking about what a completely opposite approach could look like in anything. So when people say like, what's the main problem you're trying to solve in midday squares? I don't think it's necessarily an operational problem. I think those have been solved. I think what we're trying to solve is introducing an idea to North America of what it means to be a brand that scales to a mature billion dollar enterprise and how you conduct yourself in the world and who you have to be, and what you have to say, and how you have to dress, and how you have to act, and how you have to show up. And the only way to do that is to do it. That's where the drive comes from, right? Is like, I we won't be able to break the glass ceiling unless we actually get to the top. And that's where people are always like, why are you so obsessed with the top? I don't, it's not even about the top. It's just like to prove to North America that you could just be unapologetically yourself for nobody to be able to throw any rocks at that, it needs to be bulletproof. And the only way for it to be bulletproof is to be a $10 billion enterprise where you can not dispute the facts. When you think about solving problems, it seems like maybe you have a grit to grind with like big CPG. What was your attraction maybe to try to disrupt CPG or just to work in CPG? And also, 
how do you think about the world of CPG in terms of like what actually is wrong with it? This is a two-pronged question. So I'm going to give you two steps and then we're going to tie the two steps together. So step one, I realized early, why CPG? I was trying to fish in a lot of different ponds as an entrepreneur and I kept on comparing myself to to events that were happening in CPG. So there was like some of my businesses were really hard to fundraise money on or get money on. And I always be like, well, what's going on in CPG? Why is it so like easy to do it there? But that- what's an example? Do you have like an example of like, of like one that was like tough to like fundraise on? Yeah. Les and I's uh, fashion business. Just okay. completely just not the same ecosystem whatsoever. And then I was listening to, uh, Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, and and I had an epiphany from them. And Charlie was just like, "Hey, it's pretty simple. People overthink everything. The best thing to do when fishing in a pond with less fish is to usually just pack it up and go find a new pond with a lot of fish. That's it." And what that takeaway was for me was, "Oh, I get it. If you go play in ponds that have thriving ecosystems, then you as the entrepreneur." job is to just find penetration and there's this whole ecosystem around you to support growth and vision and all that. And so that really changed the philosophy of where we were going to try to start businesses because now it was about starting businesses and ecosystems that had thriving investors, thriving startup communities, just thriving growth communities. And it was true. That post true. Once we got into CPG, it was like actually very simple to fundraise. If you had a great product and were bringing forward true innovation. Like the system rewards you if you do those two things. Where the beef comes from in CPG, and it's not even real beef, is I have this unique perspective of coming from software. And in software, everybody champion the idea of founders going the distance. Like there's a reason if you take all the publicly traded companies and split them out by category, when you look at publicly traded CPG companies, I think there's like less than don't quote me on this, but like less than 2% are le- still led by founders. The rest are conglomerates that have listed that have just gone 80, right. 90 years. When you go do that in tech, the outcome is actually very different. Like a large percentage of scaled tech businesses are still led by founders. And my beef is like tech's had all this excitement for 20 years. And I think people are excited about tech because it's led by founders still. And I think they're confused as to what is exciting about the category is that you're still seeing the trailblazers now trailblaze with billions of dollars of backings and companies that are printing cash. What happens if we do that in CPG? And why do people keep on selling their companies once they get to the point where they're about to reach scale? Like, why does that keep happening? And that is where the interest of counterculture comes back, back to the beginning of this conversation. I think we're obsessed, not with dethroning CPG companies because they're doing a great job and conglomerates are great and all that. That's not the problem. We're obsessed with what do you, do you watch game of Thrones? Yeah. Okay. What's West of Westeros. That's what we're obsessed with is at the end when she's going, like I need to know what happens when you get the $300 million of revenue and you say, no, fuck this. We are not selling. We are going to go and just continue. (laughs) What happens? No, that's, um, that's amazing because I mean, as you say, like, when it comes to exits and looking at exits for CPG, it usually, as you say, it's like an M&A transaction, right? And it's always like big CPG that kind of swallows up these companies. That's 
usually, I mean, it's not the end of the company, like the, the, the brand still survives. But as you say, like the founder then probably gets whizzled out um, as part of the package for like a year or two, and then they're done. And then you don't really have that, the creative soul maybe gets like lost a little bit. Let's say you and I are both starting the exact same company at the exact same time. I have a 25-year outlook, you have a five-year outlook. We're going to make entirely different decisions. And that's the interesting piece to this whole thing. What happens to the companies that take 25-year outlooks? Do we have an inherent competitive advantage built in simply because of our patience and the decision-making on what midday squares have built a manufacturing plant had we had to done everything we need to do in five years? I don't know if we make that decision. I'm kind of curious, how do you present midday squares as an investment opportunity since investors as well you know are looking for vcs are looking for like a, a seven-year time horizon you're thinking about it you know it seems like a lot more long term um, and i'd love to kind of get into that as well about how you think about maybe long-term thinking but how do you think about like what makes like a good partner for you and how do you maybe present midday squares like an actual opportunity to uh to invest in so the way I present Midday Squares as an opportunity is it, it's it's really a diversified piece to most portfolios is is like hey what happens if you bet on a company that has a twenty five year outlook like let like let's start there right you already have an unaveraged path that we're designed to take so that's really important if you think about in order to have an unaveraged outcome you have to have unaveraged inputs well. All the line items that Midday Squares is choosing to do is is pretty much counterculture in terms of the typical CPG playbook, uh, just in how you develop a product, uh, a company to sell to another company. Then two is it's not that we're not providing liquidity. We use when we sit the market in Canada, the public market in Canada is very different. So like the TSX is a really big public entity, sorry, a public exchange, the Toronto Stock Exchange, and that's got some really interesting stuff. So. You have like $6 trillion, let's say, of money uh, trying to transact in Canada through, let's say, government, pension funds, you name all this stuff. And of that, a percentage wants to go into Canadian dollars on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So there's actually a massive opportunity for my American colleagues and Canadian colleagues to build these businesses in Canada because there's, there's this thing that becomes, it's called export deficit. The second you are a Canadian entity that is driving most of your revenue from south of the border, i.e. the U.S. or outside of Canada, you become a very, very interesting company to the Canadian public markets because you are able to transact on the Toronto Stock Exchange in Canadian dollars. You're able to give these pension funds exposure to revenue derived outside of Canada while a lot of them still being able to meet their mandates of having to back Canadian companies. So if we look at the CDPQ, Caisse Depot, Quebec, this is an incredible example. They have $368 billion under management. They are the fourth largest pension fund in North America. And like, I don't know, I think 5 to 10% of the dollars have to be placed in the province that we live in. There's not enough companies coming every year to fulfill that. And so there's a supply and demand gap. And so what we tell investors is that the highest probability of liquidity will be through a public offering on the Toronto Stock Exchange and or via a partnership with a extremely large pension fund that will sweep the floor of the cap table when the time is needed. Got it. That makes sense. So um, either obviously uh, going public or or having a you know pretty robust, it seems like, secondary market. 
the key to that uh, robust se- secondary, Mike, is to make sure that the long-term investors are aligned with the plans of seeing founder-led companies go the distance. And the pension funds in Canada love backing founder <laughs> companies that exist for 100 years. Love that. Love that. That's great. That's great. Wanted to know as well, like talk a little bit to me about your decision making. Obviously, you're you're in this for the long haul. You're you're thinking about this long term, 20, 25 years instead of maybe like a seven year time horizon and exit to a, a large CPG company. How do you three, you Les and Jake, think about decision making now to prepare yourselves for the long term versus short term? So I think Les has really instilled counterculture in Jake and Les. Like she is the best at thinking through an independent lens. Like really deeply, Les is intuitive at first principles thinking. It's something she's done her whole life without even knowing it was first principles thinking. It was really deriving decision making from internal. And so I think every decision we make at Midday Squares goes through like this one simple question, which is what do we need to do to achieve our growth plan? And is all the decisions we are going to make to do that what we believe the herd would do? And then if we do believe it's what the herd would do, can we at least explore the opposite of what the herd would do? And if we find that opposite component interesting, we do it. And we do it because I think we all three of us believe so deeply that the only way to have a seismic unaverage outcome is to do unaverage things. And so that means like we're misunderstood a lot in terms of the playbooks that we'll run. And it doesn't mean that we won't run a typical CPG playbook for the sake of doing it. We do a lot of the typical CPG playbook stuff, but every now and then we make a crazy left turn when everybody's going right. And so like that is how we think about it and why it's the long-term helps it is that we know we have time for things to iron themselves out. We're not in a rush to try to make it work in 12 months. And so we could be wrong a lot more than our counterparts simply because we're trying to do this over a longer period of time. What's an example of maybe like something in a traditional CPG playbook that you folks are like, you know, we're, we're definitely not doing that. We're definitely being going to go completely contrarian um, in this direction. The answer to that is manufacturing. And, and here's okay. why, okay? There's many of these, but I think for... Your question, I think this will really prove the point of how we do it. Every single person that we pitched in Series A was like, didn't want to touch us with a 10-foot pole because we wanted to build a manufacturing plant. I understand why that doesn't work if you're setting up yourself for a playbook to flip right away. Why? Manufacturing is hard. It drains the core of the entity in terms of the creativity because of how hard it is. But here's the piece that's very different. When we were thinking about everything and bringing together midday squares, we had these like core principles of we had to bring to market something that was drastically different than anything that was in our area. It had to be from a mouth profile and taste profile, super unique to midday squares. It had to have a square shape. It had to be a double layer stack. It had to have this ingredient profile. And when we went to go see all the manufacturers, very quickly we realized they all had a different incentive than us. All those manufacturers wanted to make sure they optimized their downtime on machinery. Uh, They didn't have a lot of turnover. If you were using palm palm kernel oil and I'm using cocoa butter, why would I want to use warehouse space to bring in more cocoa butter? Like, no, I want you to use palm kernel oil. And so I think a lot of founders... 
in order to avoid manufacturing like the plague will sacrifice a lot of their product. And when you go and draw on the board, hey, the only way to pull this off is to manufacture. If we really want to bring our vision to life, we have to manufacture. And then you go and say, but we want to flip the company in five years. The math will never make sense. The math will never make sense. And so you will not do that. You just will not do that if you are optimizing for that piece. But if you have a 25-year game plan, then you know that by five years that your operational capacity will just start to make sense for a plant. You're willing to invest way earlier and not be scared and not care and have the guts to show up to VCs and say, we are a manufacturing plant and here's why we think that is the right call. It also shows that you also will have, you know, over years, maybe a clear competitive advantage being vertically integrated, right? Versus others, because I think that, you know, one of the things that investors maybe love to say, especially, I mean, really just tech investors, uh, some of them, that, you know, CPG is not venture backable. It's not venture fundable um, because it's so, the barrier to entry is so, so little. But if you're actually going out and you're building your own manufacturing, right? And like actually then controlling your own supply chain, like that is, that is defensible. It is so defensible and it's so scalable. Um, number one, we're really, we're starting to get really fucking good at doing it. We can manufacture plants in less than 12 months anywhere in the world because this plant that we built, none of it came from Montreal. So it doesn't matter where the fuck we build the plant. We, we, no, it's the truth. It doesn't matter where. We, we, it's like none of it comes from Montreal anyway. Even till this day, man, investors are still pushing us to try to like teach co-manufacturers how to make midday squares. Like why the fuck would we do that? Like in what world? And this is to all the co-manufacturers that are out there. If you know how to make midday squares and present us with a final midday squares without us having to teach you, we'll use you tomorrow. But I ain't fucking teaching you how to make midday squares. Yeah, we're not going back and forth on ingredients and how you need to adapt to us. Like, that is... Like, it just makes no sense. Yeah, no, totally. I think that what we actually kind of skipped over was when you were first thinking about in CPG and kind of going through the fish that has the pond that had a lot of fishes in it. Um, that was a pretty robust ecosystem that what that is, you know, CPG, what landed you on chocolate primarily? And obviously like, I'd love to kind of also hear about how you approached the branding as well to, to midday. When we get to the branding part, we're really going to focus not on me, but just on that's Les's piece to the whole equation but chocolate is the largest traded commodity in the world when it comes to the snacking segment i don't know if okay. it beats other commodities in terms of core food but in the snacking segment it beats everything inclusive of chips it's recognized worldwide so it doesn't require education you if you give somebody chocolate in anywhere you are in the world they know exactly what you're doing it's a form of endearment friendship here you go enjoy take a minute and I'm really, really into saturated markets. I think saturated markets are the most exciting places to play in CPG because by definition, in my opinion, saturated markets have not been innovated. That's why they are saturated. So how a saturated market, in my opinion, comes to be is you have a leader come into the category and then a ton of Me Too products come in. And then a lot of people do very mild variations on Me Too products. And so then you have this massive sea of like pretty much a bunch of the same products. When you look at like confectionery chocolate, like globally, there's like four products and then there's a bunch of copycats around them. 
right? You have like the Snickers bar and de where, depending on where you are in the world, it might not be Snickers. It might be Snickers like, but it's a Snickers bar. You have the Hershey's classic chocolate. You have a cookies and cream. You have uh, like a, you know, a fucking moons or an almond joy style. Like there's not that much innovation in terms of the cat, but there's tons of money being transacted in it. And when you see these like micro dollars being transacted in it, it gets me excited because it proves that an, a leading brand could be birthed in that category. And you've already solved the problem of product market fit. You don't have to worry about anything. You get to plug into this like supercharged network of, of, of consumers, right? There's a reason why $148 billion of chocolate is being traded a year is because people are ready to fucking buy chocolate. So let's give them some chocolate, you know, like that, that. So that was like, I think the core. And then a report that we received from somebody that showed me the breakdown of real chocolates growth and plant-based proteins growth was fucking exciting for us. Like I remember when Les and I were looking at the data, we we're like, wow, this is, this is something that I think we're willing to pour our lives into and dedicate the next 25 years to is there's enough damage to be done here. And I think largely that the current market missed the opportunity because if you looked at what was going on in plant-based chocolate and confectionery chocolate in general, everybody was using chocolate and robing, which is that little one millimeter chocolate, you know, like couverture on a product. But I think what the real chocolate movement really showed what was led by like, you know, Hugh Kitchen and, and Lint's crazy growth from 2011 and then you'll have lilies in there i'm not sure if lilies is considered real chocolate though uh simply because they use sugar alcohols but anyway point is is that what you saw in the chocolate movement was people were really into thick chocolate real og chocolate and so that's where that aha moment that les and i had had of like what if we brought together the two categories and kind of rethought what it would be like to make Hershey's in this day and age or Nestle chocolate. Like what would a confectionery chocolate company launching in 2020 have to look like? Um, and that's really where like all the motivation came from. Looking back, what were maybe some of like the best decisions that you feel like you made and maybe some of the worst decisions that you feel like you made over the past you know few years that you started midday? So deciding to really focus on our local market we got almost to about a million bucks of revenue just in Montreal. Wow. Um, so like really just going hardcore on that was, I think, one of the best decisions. Uh, obviously, I know I don't want to be a broken record. Uh, becoming a manufacturer <laughs> is hands down one of the best hands down. decisions. Uh, and then the last one was deciding to have an in-house media team that, uh, you know, tells the entire story uh, was the best. Now let's go to the worst. Worst decisions, there's been a few things that we've got wrong on a hiring perspective from not doing proper due diligence. I think there's some serious mistakes that had happened that could have actually been pretty detrimental for Midday Squares. And in retrospect, we probably could have avoided those like because we didn't stick to our, our game plan on how we went and hired uh, some of uh, those those members. And it's not their fault. It was. It really comes down to it being a midday square's fault of just not following our playbook of due diligence on that end. A ton of small, poor Lord. decisions along the way. And the best way to describe all those poor decisions is us being affected by the noise. There's like, we all agree on all of the poorest decisions like Jake, Les, and I, on all the poorest decisions we've made, we've all had the answer and didn't listen to it collectively. 
we chose for whatever reason to continue against what our bodies were screaming was the answer. That is like the common theme over and over in my life of poor decisions. And I don't know why I can't learn still. That's really fascinating. Also, since like, I also want to know how the decision-making process works at midday where you have, you know, three co-founders, all three of you are family. How do you think about like organizational wise of like responsibilities divvied up and make sure that you are able to collaborate, but also at the same time, um, have your own distinctive roles per se? No, really important. I mean, we really abide to org structure. We were all very clear with what the roles were going to be before we started Midday Squares. It's defined. We talk about them in therapy almost every week since we've started. So we talk about them in therapy almost every week since we started. We have a therapist and coach that we see. And so we really go through irks and eeks. And so like one of the things is, is you can't have your cake and eat it too, no matter what right? In terms of um, being a leader in ops role. And so when you define who's making what decisions, you have to, then your job becomes, let's say amongst Les, Jake, or I, if I have an opinion on media, let's say, and every all media reports into Les, okay? I can only give my opinion and attempt to persuade through writing a memo or a deck or something to it is my job now to be a salesman, but ultimately the decision lays in Les and the media team's hands. And so it changes the dynamic from being argumentative to persuasive. You have to actually fight to persuade, which is the way every organization should be, which is I know ultimately that the decision maker is going to make their decision. They don't have to side with me. It is my job to sell my idea. And if I can't, then I failed. I really like that approach. What's been some of like the most challenging part of being an entrepreneur? What you perceive as immediate gratification or happiness to find your state of flow of enjoying the journey. And that is, I think, every entrepreneur's hardest piece of the journey is there comes a day where you have to stop being miserable. I think every single entrepreneur listening, and if you disagree with me, call me. I would love to hear. No, I would love to really hear it. It goes through a period of where they find themselves in misery in their trajectory as an entrepreneur, they've created all this thing that is making them absolutely miserable. And a fork presents itself in the road for you at that moment where you have to decide if you're going to go left or right. And are you going to fight to choose to not be a miserable entrepreneur and enjoy the journey? Um, Because that journey is fucking hard. It's plagued with humans that are going to not see eye to eye with you, internal team members that are going to think you did them wrong, you got did wrong. I mean, it's posed with all of these really ugly truths about being an adult and growing, and it breaks your spirit every day. And so how much of that are you willing to make your reality is the hardest part versus saying, no, I don't want to be miserable every day. This is something I choose to do every day. There's a game to this, and this is where I always say like, Get that therapy, it helps. Get the people that hold you accountable uh, to grow. So like for instance, Les came up with this great idea of every year in September, there's an alarm that goes off in her phone that asks her and us if we want to continue doing this for another year. And if we do want to continue doing this for another year, it's time to reflect about things that are making us miserable and being okay with confronting those miseries and then deciding how we fix them Because we came into 2022 and we really promised each other that we didn't want to be miserable anymore. Uh, There was just too much misery in 2021 from a 
uh, if you put it on a weigher, there was more misery than there was good times uh, in terms of stress and dealing with everything that brought to midday squares. And that's where you have to start emotionally detaching yourself from this entity, which is you have to start bringing in components of enjoyment that have nothing to do with the successor stresses of midday squares. One. Two, another important thing that I appreciate she's done for me and continues to do is telling me like, Nick, this is what we get paid to do. That's our job. Our job is to solve all these problems and to deal with all these headaches and to do that is the job. And so you, you have to enjoy that piece of it. You have to start, you know, attacking it and stop being like, oh, if only I could have midday squares without these things. That's like utopic thinking. That's like, you know, that's where you end up in really dangerous area. So like changing the mentality of this is something I choose to do every day. I want to be really good at it. I want to enjoy it. And I want to make it a process that has nothing to do with the ebbs and flows of it is uh, the most important thing you can do in the journey, in my opinion, and, and, and what we've learned so far. I appreciate that. You know, I also like the fact that you all evaluate uh, whether you want to continue doing it or not. I think it goes back to your first point of like this company doesn't find it, any of you guys. So no, that's that's amazing. Well, Nick, this has been so much fun. Thanks again for coming on the show. I, I love following you on Twitter. And, and when you had an opening on it, I, I wanted to jump on it. I love talking shop. I just, I really want to encourage a new generation of entrepreneurs. And that's why I love doing this stuff. Like really thinking about this differently. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. No, it, you... This is incredible. Thanks again so much for your time, Nick. And there you have it. I hope you all enjoy Nick's story of how and why he started Midday Squares. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.